one of America's great rural cemeteries overlooking the falls of the James River, Hollywood provides a final resting place for Richmond's, indeed Virginia's, political, business, and creative leaders, as well as 18,000 Confederate dead. Since before the Civil War, the elaborate ironwork, stone monuments, mausoleums, and natural setting have memorialized the varied lives of the individuals who have populated Virginia's capital city. In this lecture, based on his new book, our speaker will bring these stories to life once more. As Dr. Edward L. Ayers, president of the University of Richmond, says in his foreword to the book, and I quote, they speak to us still. After practicing law in Richmond for 30 years, John Peters completed the transition to writer and architectural photographer. He has written or taken the photographs for seven books, a number of which I think you probably know about, um, sometimes both in the same book, as this is the case with, with this book, Richmond's Hollywood Cemetery. His books include Virginia's Historic Courthouses, which he wrote with his wife Margaret, who's here today as well, and for which he did the photography, uh, Blandford Cemetery, Death and Life in Petersburg, and A History of the Richmond Bar. He also did the original photography for Richmond's Monument Avenue, which is a beautiful book that I'm sure you may have seen. Born in Charlottesville, he was graduated from VMI and the University of Virginia Law School. And he's currently working on a history of the United States District Court for the Eastern District of Virginia. So please join me on this cold day in giving a warm welcome to John Peters, who will speak to us about Richmond's Hollywood Cemetery. Thank you, Paul, for that most generous uh, introduction. I'm very pleased to be here today and to see so many friends and colleagues. And I'm especially pleased that this lecture series is dedicated to uh, my friend Charlie Bryan. Uh, I realize today that in talking here, I have come full circle on my book on Hollywood Cemetery. I began my research here what is now a number of years ago, and I'm not sure there are many people here who thought that I was a permanent resident. Uh, but I did spend months going through the records at the Historical Society. All of, the, all of Hollywood's original minutes are uh, located here. And uh, I just want to say that Frances Pollard and her cohorts at the library treat, in, unfailingly treated me with courtesy. They were helpful at every turn, and I could not speak more highly of any group of people. Now, I'd also like to thank, thank Meg Hughes, who is seated right in front of me down here. Meg is the director of archives at the Valentine Richmond History Center. Um, but she is even more important here today because she is the person who was most responsible for helping with the collection and selection and reproduction of the images that are in the book, many of which you'll be seeing today. Now, I realize full well that I have some very large shoes to fill uh, here. Uh, Dr. Hunter McGuire, Mac McGuire, as he's known to most of you, uh, has spoken about Hollywood here brilliantly. Uh, 
in, with grace and good humor. Uh, Mac could not have been more helpful to me in connection with the preparation of this book. Charity's notes and anecdotes, and I could not have asked for more from him. Nonetheless, Mac remains what has to be described as a tough act to follow. Now, I've concluded that I'm probably going to have to use some form of cheap trickery to win you over. <laughs> and after giving it some thought, I've concluded that the only way to do that may be to try to evoke some sympathy for people who write about cemeteries. <laughs> now, you probably think that I'm going to talk to you about the prolonged bouts with depression or waking up repeatedly in the middle of the night from some ghoulish dream sequence set in Hollywood or even having to confront your own mortality on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, it's, well, actually, it's none of those things. Uh, the problem arises with that writer's toolbox, that arsenal of words and phrases that for generations writers have relied on to bail them out of trouble. But suddenly, when you write about cemeteries, much of that goes out the window. The toolbox is severely limited. Some words that you can use in ordinary circumstances just simply won't do when talking about cemeteries. Uh, let me give you a few examples. It, you can't talk about a grave situation <laughs> or even a bold undertaking. <laughs> a funereal atmosphere is totally out of the question and a large body of evidence <laughs> won't do very well either. Uh, can't say there are a lot of secrets buried at Hollywood uh, and Heaven forbid you use the word phrase that has some currency with the broadcast media today, dead on arrival. <laughs> so I hope you'll forgive me if I can't resist one more example as I prepare to move on when I say it's time to get deadly serious. <laughs> uh, the first thing I'm going to be talking about today is the rural cemetery movement. You've heard Paul refer to it in his introduction. For those of you who've heard me speak before about Hollywood, you know I've spent most of my time talking about the rural cemetery movement, but I'm not going to do that today. I'm going to make it quick, but at the same time, I don't want you to think that by doing that, uh, it minimizes the importance of it. Simply put, the rural cemetery movement is the, the very key to understanding Hollywood Cemetery. Hollywood is one of America's great rural cemeteries, and I hope that will have more meaning to you when you, after you've heard me talk about it. By rural cemetery, I don't mean a graveyard located in the country. Uh, the rural cemetery movement was a specific movement culturally and socially in America during the mid-19th century. Uh, 
it occurred essentially during the heart of the Romantic period, basically between 1830 and the start of the Civil War. I think it's safe to say that it was an era in which virtually everything changed about, as, about America's attitude toward death. Now, I can't show you a photograph of a movement, but what we are going to be doing today is showing you some photographs that I took that attempt to capture the essence of a rural cemetery. Now, what can we say about death in an earlier era? And by that I mean the colonial period, maybe up to the end of the early national period, or about 1820. Bodies were buried in graveyards or burial grounds. They were not yet commonly called cemeteries. Bodies were buried in coffins, shaped much like the shape of the contours of a human body, not yet called caskets. By 1820, America's burial grounds, mostly churchyards, were becoming overcrowded and dangerous to public health. There was nothing romantic or sentimental about death in that era. People expected judgment by a severe God. Fujidora, the hour is fleeting, and memento mori, remember you're going to die, were the words of the day. The symbols were stark and to the point. Hourglasses, sighs, skulls, and crossbones. Now, what was happening in America during the Romantic period? The country was becoming industrialized and depersonalized. Green spaces were disappearing in America's large cities at a frantic pace. People were losing touch with nature and the cycles of birth, death, and regeneration. There was a sense that they were losing the values that they had held dear. Crass commerce had come to dominate people's lives. Against this background, two business bus Richmond businessmen paid a visit to Boston, and together they went to visit Mount Auburn Cemetery there. They were William Hacksall and Joshua Fry. Now, you should be asking why on earth would two business Richmond businessmen in 1847 be visiting Mount Auburn Cemetery in Boston? We'll talk about that later. Upon their return to Richmond, they convinced their colleagues that Richmond needed a rural cemetery and immediately began laying plans to, that led to the founding of Hollywood. Purchased land in Harvey's Woods just west of the Belvedere Mansion. They uh, enlisted the aid of a number of their colleagues. Now, the rural cemetery movement was based on the theory that cemeteries were as much for the living as the dead. Now, that's a totally new concept at this point. The origins of rural cemeteries can be traced through English country gardens, where, there, where the emphasis was on places for melancholy contemplation, then the movement moved to France, 
Post-revolutionary France was a fragmented culture. Uh, in essence, the country was struggling to create a new history. It must be recalled that America was a relatively new democracy at that point. And so there arose what some have called a cult of heroes. And in 1804, the French opened a cemetery on the outskirts of Paris named Père Lachaise. That was in 1804, and it was probably the world's first rural cemetery. To make it popular, the French decided to move France's two most famous lovers, Abelard and Eloise there, along with uh, Moliere. And they reside there today with Oscar Wilde, Chopin, Balzac, Sarah Bernhardt, Edith Piaf, and Jim Morrison, the American rock star, who died in Paris in 1871. <laughs> Key thing is that Père Lachaise was very much like a public park. It was American writers who were really primarily responsible for bringing the rural cemetery movement to America. Washington Irving, in particular, believed that American character could be improved by the by the rich vein of melancholy in English character. And there is a famous quote from his sketchbook of, Jeff, of Edward Crayon in 1820 that sort of epitomizes the rural cemetery movement. And the quote is, but why should we thus seek to clothe with unnecessary terror and spread horrors around the tomb of those we love. The grave should be surrounded by everything that can inspire tenderness and veneration for the dead, or that might live, win the living to virtue. So there you have it. No unnecessary terrors or horrors, tenderness and veneration for the dead, but perhaps most important of all, cemetery should win the living to virtue. A totally new concept. Now you say, what has this got to do with Hollywood Cemetery? There's a direct connection. At the first annual meeting of the cemetery's subscribers, the president of the secretary of the cemetery, Thomas Ellis, read that exact quote in his president's report. Now, what that tells you is that the founders of Hollywood knew precisely what the rural cemetery movement was all about and intentionally tried to recreate the same concept here in Richmond. Now, the first rural cemetery in the United States was Mount Auburn Cemetery in Boston. It was founded in 1831 on the banks of the Charles River. It was a partnership between a Harvard medical professor and the Massachusetts Horticultural Society. It had meandering roads and pathways, irregular shaped lots, lakes, and an emphasis on the pastoral. Now, the impact of Mount Auburn was almost immediate. It received expansive newspaper publicity, and other rural cemeteries soon followed within a decade. You had Greenwood in Brooklyn, Green Mountain, Baltimore, Laurel Hill, and Philadelphia. Now, I'm coming to the answer to that question of why two business 
Richmond businessmen would visit Mount Auburn Cemetery. And this answer always astounds me, even today. In 1847, 16 years after its founding, Mount Auburn had become the most popular tourist attraction in Boston at the time. Now, during the Romantic period, death was transformed from something grotesque into something beautiful. They were called cemeteries by then, and cemeteries, cemeter, the word cemetery is derived from a word for sleeping place. And they started to bury people in caskets rather than coffins. And the word casket is derived from a word from, for chest. And unlike a coffin, its shape could hold almost anything. So you can see gra Americans gradually starting to remove themselves from the obvious connotations of death. Uh, death had come to be associated with sleep, and that was the result of some theological change, a retreat from the strict tenets of Calvinism uh, with a greater, more expanded hope of salvation and reunification with relatives and friends in heaven. Symbolism changed completely. We're now talking about flowers and birds and angels, uh, softer romantic symbols without exception. Now, rural cemeteries, the ingredients of a rural cemetery and Hollywood certainly checks out well on all of these. You had dramatic ravines, had rugged hills, meandering roads, thick vegetation, leafy glades, sun-dappled hills. Uh, now, you have to contrast this with Shaco Hill Cemetery in Richmond, completed in 1822, just uh, you know, 25 years before Hollywood. Shaco Hill is laid out on the grid plan. There's straight roads, uniform-sized lots, and what the writers love to refer to as naked, naked rows of graves. Now, what we're seeing here totally is an emphasis on the pastoral. This is the plan that John Notman, the Philadelphia architect who designed Hollywood, developed for the cemetery. If you look at it carefully, you can see that it's actually a series of four hilltops set in a row that have been combined gracefully with roads to make them accessible. It is an exceptionally rugged site. Now, it featured basically the same thing that the other rural cemeteries did. Notman went on to design a new plan for Capitol Square in Richmond shortly after Hollywood. It was redesigned in the naturalistic style. And just a year later, Richmond began to develop its first series of public parks. Now the Last thing that you need to take away from this discussion of rural cemeteries is that rural cemeteries were the forerunners of public parks. In America's large cities, rural cemeteries came before public parks.
again looking at the concept that these cemeteries were as much for the living as for the dead. Now next, I'm going to be talking about some specific monuments. Uh, not much has been written about the aesthetic elements of Hollywood. It's stone carvers, it's ironwork, it's mausoleums. I've attempted to do that, but now I'm going to talk some about Jefferson Davis and his family. It's not the common things that you hear about Jefferson Davis. Davis died in 1889 in New Orleans, and almost immediately a competition began involving all the southern states and a couple of border states over where his body was to be permanently buried. You're looking at a slide showing the dedication of the Davis Monument, the tall bronze sculpture in the, toward the right, and the allegorical angel for his daughter Winnie Davis on the far right. Now, Davis was reburied at Hollywood in 1893. Fascinating story of how his body got from New Orleans to Richmond, but it's really a story for another day. Uh, now, when he was reburied at Hollywood, and this is a photograph of the funeral cortege, the white horses and the, and the caisson, they were actually t used in the connection with the reburial at Hollywood. Now, three of his sons and a grandson were buried in the circle shortly after he was. Now, I'm going to show you photographs of three monuments that have several things in common. Now, first, from what I've already said, you know that they are all located on Davis Circle. Second, you know they are all monuments for members of the Davis family. It is the third thing that they have in common that is most interesting to me, and we'll talk about that later. Let's discuss the monuments. This is the bronze monument for Jefferson Davis. It's very realistic. It's very stately. Uh, and the quote from the sculptor was, no one would ever say that that was the statue of a Yankee. Is a <laughs> it is a typical Southern gentleman. The elasticity of his step, the proud and haughty air, all point to the characteristics of the ex-president of the Confederacy. Now, let's talk about the way he's dressed because this is interesting as well. The sculptor also betrayed that the widow, Verena Davis, had specified that he'd be buried in the clothes that he was wearing when he was captured by the Northern forces. Now the question arises, why would she specify that? Now if you think for a little bit, you may recall those nasty rumors that were circulating after Davis's capture about his being captured in women's clothing. Uh, those rumors have been put to rest, but there was a period of months, if not years, when there were vicious cartoons and editorials about Davis and newspapers throughout the country chiding him for being dressed in women's clothes. What you see here is a single-handed effort by 
Verena Davis to put those rumors to rest. Uh, this shows him in the clothes and what he was wearing when he was captured. Now, this is fascinating, but between 1893 and 1899, there was no monument to mark Jefferson Davis's grave. His daughter Winnie died in 1898 at the age of 34. By any measure, she was a tragic figure. She was known as the daughter of the Confederacy, and an adoring Southern public heaped on her all the ideals of Southern womanhood. She was practically always on stage. She was not allowed to marry the Northern suitor that she planned to marry. Uh, and so it was a relatively short and tragic life. What you're looking at is the marble monument for Winnie Davis. Now, it's marble. It's an allegorical angel. It came to be known as the angel of grief. There was a great outpouring of public grief when Winnie Davis died. And her monument was paid for by public contributions. It was commissioned by the United Daughters of the Confederacy. But interestingly, interestingly enough, Jefferson Davis monument was paid for by the family. I don't know the reason for that. He was obviously by then a fairly popular figure in Richmond and throughout the South. Now, the next monument I'm going to show you is for Margaret Davis Hayes, who was Jefferson Davis's second daughter. Now, this monument appears to be quite different from the others. It's somewhat austere. Its meaning's not clear. It's a, an androgynous figure. Can't tell whether it's a man or woman standing between the pages of a book. Uh, quite unlike the bronze monument to Jefferson Davis and the Winnie Dame Davis's angel of grief. Now, I think we're ready now to finally look at what is the third thing that these monuments have in common. If you've read the book, you'll know that the thing they have in common is that they were all done by the same sculptor. Astonishingly, though of different materials and totally different styles, from quite realistic to quite modern, they were all done by George Julian Zolny. Zolny was a Romanian who came to the United States for the 1893 exposition and remained here, and he credited his work at Davis Circle with earning him commissions throughout the land. Now, I'm going to try to move fairly quickly through a tour of other monuments at Hollywood. Uh, some of the most interesting monuments and some of which, about which I'm asked the most questions. First, I'm going to be talking about a man named John W. Davies. 
Now, when I came to practice law in Richmond, gosh, 50 years ago, uh, Main Street was the epicenter of the business and professional community in Richmond. Before the Civil War, 9th and Main Street was the site of J.W. Davies, Davies' stone yard. This is where he carved monuments. Now, Davies was English-born, trained as a stonemason and civil engineer. He arrived in Richmond in 1846. He became Hollywood's outstanding stone carver. Amazingly, he never worked in stone after the war. He had been commander of a company of sharpshooters during the war, and uh, in, in mid-1850s, he asked the Hollywood board to allow him to build a mausoleum to be used as a receiving vault at Hollywood. So just to orient you a little bit, if you come down the hill at Hollywood and turn left by the Central Valley, this will be the first mausoleum on your right. And it's important for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's Egyptian revival. And the influence of the Egyptian revival at Hollywood was quite prominent for the dec decade of the 1850s. And you can see that or you, through the uh, interlocking step pyramidal forms. Now this is a detail of the uh, Davies uh, mausoleum. And it gives you the date and you see the angel. Now I became convinced during my work that John W. Davies, though it's strong stone carver, didn't do this angel. Uh, it's typical of many seen at Hollywood. But let me show you a, an angel that John W. Davies did do. This is probably Hollywood's oldest angel. It's very different from the one that you just saw. It's quite naive, actually, fairly simple, uh, but magnificent in its own way. Uh, now, Davies did an extraordinary number of really wonderful monuments at Hollywood. I discussed and picture many of them in my book. Uh, but we're going to move ahead now to another Davies monument, and that for Peter Vivian Daniel. When I began work on this book, very few people realized that Peter V. Daniel was buried at Hollywood. And who, you would ask, was Peter Vivian Daniel? Well, Peter Vivian Daniel was the last Virginian to serve as a member of the Supreme Court before Lewis Powell. Uh, he was from Stafford County. He was a arch conservative. He was a, known more for his dissents than anything else on the Supreme Court. He was in favor of states' rights, limited government, and slavery, which would have been typical of most white Virginians before the Civil War. Now, this is a slide of the top, the urn on top of the Daniel Monument. Uh, and it serves as the frontispiece uh, in the book. And you get to get a feeling here of the type of work that he was 
capable of. Now I'm going to talk about another very popular monument, which is the monument that has come to be known as Grief. It's located in President's Circle and marks the grave of William Hacksaw's stepson, who died at age 29. Now what, the, the, the sculptor Edward Valentine, E.V. Valentine, was Richmond's most popular sculptor, uh, known mostly for very realistic works. What is so remarkable about grief, and that's the title by which it's come to be known, is that the sense of grief jumps right at, out at you off of the monument. For sculptors, it's almost impossible to depict grief or convey that emotion without being able to show you a face. You can see a small bit of a hand, but that's about it. The success of this work is due entirely to the position of the body and the drape of the fabric. And I think that it's impossible to conclude that without a face or much of a hand, Edward Valentine was able to pull this off. Now, I'm going to show you three slides that make, that are examples of the Victorian rusticity movement. Now, this is the Lloyd plot. Everything in the Lloyd lot is a tree trunk, a log, a tree stump. Uh, it's amazing. It's the only one in Hollywood that, or that I've ever seen anywhere where all of the elements in, this, in the lot are trees in one state or another. Um, now, the American rusticity movement, Victorian rusticity movement, is associated with many Americans as dealing with that lawn furniture made of twigs and logs and pieces of wood. Uh, but it had a very prominent place in America's cemeteries. Now, next I'm going to be looking, we're going to be looking at the monument for Herbert Quarles, who died on his 12th birthday and the little inscription down at the bottom on the tablet reads, we know that he is happy with his angel plumage on, but our hearts are very desolate to think that he is gone. It's almost identical to a monument for Eddie Ray, also a young man. You see the cap and the school bag. Uh, there are a number of these that can be found in cemeteries and they're almost always practically identical. Uh, but they were very typical for small children, usually boys, at that time in America. Now, behind the, the rusticity movement in cemeteries was an organization known as the Woodman of the World, which was an insurance company that used to supply grave markers to its policyholders. And they did that up until around 1920. This is an example of a Woodman of the World monument. 
probably done by the J. Henry Brown Company in Richmond, which had the contract uh, to supply Woodman of the World uh, grave markers. Now, the next monument we're going to be looking at is the monument for Virginia Randolph Ellett, Miss Jenny Ellett, who founded a school that came to be known as St. Catherine's. Uh, her monument is important because of all the monuments at Hollywood, it was done by perhaps the greatest cast of participants uh, of any. It was designed by Ernest Leland, who was a cemetery, he wasn't from Richmond, he was a cemetery expert rec recognized as such throughout America. And it has a bas relief of an angel on it, who it that is supposed to represent progress and ceaseless endeavor. And the sculptor was Rene Chambelan of New York City, one of America's great Art Deco sculptors. He did much of the work uh, at Radio City in New York, Buffalo City Hall, the Chicago Tribune Tower. And the powerful inscription was by James Branch Cavill. I think it's important to read it. Quote, foremost in learning and faith and in aid, preeminent, preeminent, all tireless, never proud, but resolute in progress and afraid only of finding no work beyond. Next monument we're gonna look at is for another educator, John Peyton McGuire, who founded McGuire's University School. John Peyton McGuire's monument is obviously a rusticated cross. You'll find dozens of them in Hollywood. But that's not why it's fun to look at it right now because the real reason is because John Peyton McGuire's uh, monument can be matched with its order for its manufacture from the J. Henry Brown order books, which can be found at the Library of Virginia. And from the time, I think, that the last monument or the last inscription that I discussed will be this one, which looks as if it should belongs more in a choir loft than at Hollywood Cemetery. The musical notations are found on the mammoth monument for Braxton of Cherokee. The tune is Mercy, a hymn arrangement by Edwin Bond Parker of a famous piano piece, The Last Hope, by prominent composer and pianist Louis M. Gottschalk. I'm so happy that I've had this time with you today to discuss what I think are some of the interesting aspects of Hollywood Cemetery. I am convinced that there is no better vehicle through which to tell Richmond history from the 1840s forward than Hollywood Cemetery. Uh, I've appreciated your attention.
I hope you'll take away a little bit today, especially about the rural cemetery movement. Thank you so much. I hope, I hope very much that there will be some questions. Your questions do not have to be limited uh, to the things that I've discussed today. There's a great probability I will not be able to answer them, but I'll, I'll give it a shot anyway. So if anyone has questions, uh, please let us know. Yes, sir, we very much enjoyed uh, your slides and your talk. Uh, my question uh, is back to the two businessmen who visited the St. Auburn's Cemetery in Boston. Uh, one, one has to ask if uh, they thought that's where the treasure were buried and whether <laughs> or not uh, the cemetery movement and Hollywood in particular had any underlying profit motivation and two, uh, were they ecumenical? The question of the profit motivation I'll take first in that as far as I can detect there was never any profit motivation to the organization of Hollywood. It was always a nonprofit uh, operation and if there were excess funds beyond operational expenses they were plowed back by plowed, that's another one of those words I probably, <laughs> <laughs> they, they, they were probably put back into the cemetery by improvements to the uh, cemetery. Uh, now, your first part, uh, William Hacksaw was involved with, the, was part of the flour milling family. They were both members of the merchant class. Uh, and the members of the merchant class, for the most part, were those who founded Hollywood. So at, when Hollywood was, it's, its very being was being challenged at the outset. The papers and a lot of people accused them being, uh, of being a profit-making organization and a Yankee profit-making venture, which is about as bad as you could say at that time in, <laughs> in, in Richmond. Uh, but there's no evidence to support that. It's still a nonprofit uh, corporation. They paid off their original subscribers. The people who put up money to get it off the ground were repaid their subscriptions. But beyond that, I find no evidence that it's ever been a profit-making organization. This tombstone of Jeb Stewart, why is money left there? Coins. Generally speaking, when small trinkets or money or whatever else are left at grave sites, there are a couple of examples at Hollywood. I think that management frowns on them a little bit. But they're known as grave goods, uh, and they're left, I think, to let people know that they have visited. Or the other examples that I can think of are the black dog. I'd hope to be able to speak a little bit about the black dog today. The black dog's probably the most popular site at Hollywood now. It's probably more popular than the grave sites of Monroe and Tyler and Jefferson Davis. It's just amazing. But there are small trinkets left on the grave for the child located in that plot. Another example is the Harvey family, the family that was murdered uh, in Westover Hills. Quite recently, they're buried in the new portion of Hollywood. Very innovative, Mark. And if you go there, you'll find toys and trinkets and empty wine bottles and all sorts of things. Uh, so. 
I think it's part of a continuation, this is speculation on my part, of a, what was originally a Jewish tradition or a tradition of nomadic people, uh, where the Jewish tradition is that they leave a small rock or pebble on the tombstone. Uh, and that's because a nomadic people marked the graves originally with stones. And when people came to visit, they would often leave a small pebble or a stone to say, on my way through, I've been here. And I think that's what's going on uh, with, with grave goods in general. Now, why money, I don't know. Uh, I can't answer that. Would you mind uh, telling the story about how Jefferson Davis's body got to uh, Richmond? Well, it's, it's, there was a funeral train from New Orleans to Richmond. It had a car with glass slat sides and went through his home at Beauvoir on the Gulf Coast and then to Birmingham and Atlanta and Charlotte and Raleigh and on to Richmond. Every place it stopped there was this, there were huge crowds, this great outpouring of ceremony and honor. Uh, and even along the sides of the railroad where it didn't stop, there were lines of people all along the way. Uh, it's hard to explain this, this great outpouring. As, as most of you know, Davis was never a popular figure in Richmond during the war. Uh, but 30 years after the war, he was a very popular person. Uh, the interesting thing about it is how it was viewed in the South and in the North. The South viewed it as an opportunity to recognize its former president of the Confederacy. But the rest of the nation was aghast. Uh, they viewed it at, as an indication that the South was unrepentant. And there was a lot of negative criticism from, literally from Crow's coast to coast above the nation, the Mason-Dixon line. Uh, one San Francisco newspaper said that, you know, betrayal and treachery were just as valuable as honor and success. I mean, it was, it was uh, construed quite differently in the two sections of the country. Uh, there were also elaborate ceremonies here in Richmond, as you might imagine, when the train arrived here. I discuss it at some length in the uh, book, and I think Mary Mitchell in her book on Hollywood Cemetery pro probably discusses it as much, if not more, than I do. But if you get a chance, it's, it's an intriguing story. Why was it named Hollywood Cemetery? That's a, that's a terrific question. The, the pr original proposed name for Hollywood Cemetery was Mount Vernon Cemetery, probably because of Mount Auburn Cemetery, uh, a logical thing for two Virginians to do who just visited Mount Auburn Cemetery in Boston. It was John Notman, the architect who designed the cemetery, who, when he visited Hollywood for the first time, noticed the huge number of very large holly trees on the ground at Hollywood, and next time you're out there, take a look. There are a large number of huge holly trees in Hollywood Cemetery. And so it was the 
large number of holly trees, very imposing holly trees, that caused Notman to tell the organizers that they ought to name the cemetery Hollywood Cemetery, which, as you know, for people outside of Richmond, has caused untold confusion <laughs> with, with that town in California. Can you talk about the resistance that the citizens had about the cemetery being at its location, the reason why, and then if you have time, talk about the presence of the lake, which is no longer there? Yes. Uh, there was huge resistance to Hollywood, and it centered on two, perhaps three, three things. And although some people over time have tended to minimize the opposition and say it was a little crazy, I don't fall into that camp. I think that the issues that were raised about Hollywood and the land that it had bought and whether it should be developed there were quite legitimate issues. The issues were, unlike Mount Auburn, which was three to four miles from the outskirts of Boston at the time, Hollywood was nestled pretty close to downtown Richmond, uh, within a mile, mile and a half. People thought and argued that it would block the western expansion of the city. Here you were taking 43 acres of land on the banks of the mighty James, and you were going to convert it to a cemetery. The counter-argument was that some people had thought about developing the land before, and it is such a rugged site that they couldn't think of any feasible way uh, to do that, uh, and that generally it was preferable to be used for uh, a graveyard. Uh, the other one was that the city's reservoir was located on the Clark Springs tract which was just west of the cemetery. And the pump house that pumped water from the James River to the reservoir, the lines passed right under the Hollywood land. So those who opposed Hollywood had fears, some of them quite legitimately, that the water supply would be contaminated by going through a cemetery. Uh, eventually, the cemetery overcame that argument. They did two things. They, they commissioned a report. <laughs> That's been going on for a long time. But they, they got a report from, from some experts that said, no, that that wasn't really much of a serious concern. But even today, if you go out to Hollywood and you go over just east of President Circle, you'll see a sp space about 20 feet wide all the way through where there are no burials. And the reason for that is that they voluntarily agreed not to have any burials within 10 feet of the water line. So when you walk to the middle of that space and look straight down, you're looking at where the water lines used to go pumping the water from the river to the uh, pump house. Uh, this opposition to Hollywood was really quite virulent. Uh, and the Richmond Enquirer can't remember whether it's the Whig or the Inquiry, but one of them really detested the idea of Hollywood Cemetery and said some terrible things about the people who founded it and about the cemetery itself. So uh, it was a real hot topic in Richmond for over a decade 
And the thing that changed people's minds about the opposition to Hollywood and made it more acceptable was the reburial there of President Monroe. Uh, it was the Monroe reburial that made Hollywood acceptable to the people. Of course, the Civil War came right on the heels of that. It would have probably been successful anyway uh, because of the Civil War and its connections to the war and the burials of the prominent Confederate heroes that took place there. Have I, did I answer that completely or is it? Oh, lakes. At one time, I think there were as many as four lakes at Hollywood. Uh, that main Central Valley was a large lake. Uh, but as the water supply, the springs dwindled off, they became dark, dirty places, hard to maintain, unsafe to public health, uh, all manner of problems with them. And that lake, they eventually put a cement bottom in it and retained it, but that didn't work. So eventually the main lake and the main valley uh, went by the board. When they developed the, the land after the first expansion of the cemetery, I'm trying to think of the name of the road, but one of those steep roads that comes down from the western boundary of the cemetery, it's now been developed as gray sites. Once had, I think, three small lakes that sort of trickled, trickled down. And that's the reason that there are so many re fairly recent burials in what would ordinarily have been considered to be an older part of the cemetery. One more question. Thank you. John, do you know what the material is that is used by the woodmen of the world to create those rusticated gravestones? Is it concrete, stone, what? I think it's a variety of materials. That are, there are some of them that are clearly granite. Uh, I, I should mention that not all woodmen of the world gravestone grave markers look like trees. There are many at Hollywood that just have a brass circular plaque on them that say woodmen of the world and with the symbol of the society that don't look anything like trees. Uh, in Richmond, the woodmen of the world had a contract with the J. Henry Brown Com Company, one of Richmond's most prominent monument companies for close to a century, I guess, to manufacture its uh, markers. I've seen some that appear to be uh, limestone. Uh, I, I tend to think that most of them are probably granite. Uh, I think that some of them, there are particular types of woodmen of the world stones that I think have to be mass produced in some way because they all look alike. I mean, there are certain categories of them uh, that are quite uniform. But beyond that, I think, th I think that it varies. I think it depends on local conditions and local materials. So I don't think there's any specific answer to that. For example, I think that the monument that I showed you of uh, the Quarles Monument which is also identical to one for Eddie Ray, who is the son of Richmond, of one of Richmond's most prominent stone carvers. I think they were produced in some sort of mass way because they just look too much alike to have been created individually. Thank you very much, John. Thank you. Thank you.